The information we collect at the moment in biomedicine is so sparse and so limited in its scope that if we don't change it fundamentally, we're never really going to get out of the current innovation cycle, which is on a 12 to 15 year time scale. That we need to all be thinking about how all of the information we all collect, whether patients, providers, or biomedical researchers, is connected in ways that actually informs the entire enterprise going forward. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. A brilliant cardiologist and geneticist, Callum McRae rose to the top of academic medicine, then decided to reinvent it from the inside. He just may be the person to do it. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Soonan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's show is sponsored by Metadata. Metadata, the intelligent platform for life sciences that closes the loop between clinical development and commercialization to power smarter treatments and healthier people. So, Lisa. <laughs> yes, David. So, you're a big fan of the United Kingdom. I know you've gone to Ireland quite a bit in connection with Health XL. Have you ever been to Scotland, where today's guest is from? I have been to Scotland. I love Scotland. A, there's scotch there. Um, but I also just, it's beautiful, beautiful. I mean, like, amazing. And I, I have a thing for cows. So they have these, you know, big horn, like, highland <laughs> cattle there that are amazing, amazing. Oh, we had a wonderful family trip when we were younger, too. Um, we went to Scotland. We, we actually stayed in Edinburgh, had like a kippers and something or other. <laughs> we were there for the Fringe Festival. You know, it was uh, oh, yeah. so That's awesome. I really wanted to just the, the nicest people I've, we think I've ever met. So yeah. it was a great, great thing. By the way, Lisa, do you know who else is from Scotland? And a hint, hint, he's a well-known physician. That's right. Arthur Conan Doyle. But do you know who, <laughs> do you know who else is? Our guest today, Callum McRae. Well, so, what do you know? What do you know? What a dink. So um, welcome, Callum. <laughs> We're so delighted to have you on the show today. Um, both my wife and I knew Callum from our training in Boston. And like everyone else, truly like everyone else, we became immediate fans. Somehow Callum manages to be an empathetic doctor, an astute diagnostician, an accomplished researcher, and an incredibly down-to-earth person, which Lisa will find an especially refreshing trait in someone who spent so much time at Harvard. Just as a contrast to the others I know. I know Callum from his work with the American Heart Association and, and uh, One Brave Idea. Which so. we're going to get to. So the key here is that Callum wasn't born in Boston or even the U.S. He came from away, specifically the Isle of Skye off the coast of Scotland. Welcome to all things Scottish. If it's no Scottish, it's crap! crap. <laughs> the Isle of Skye is home to at least two distilleries, it turns out. Yes, I looked it up. Callum's dad was a PCP who he described as fully engaged in his community. Can you tell us about this, Callum? Yes, David. Um, my dad was... Um, actually, he ended up on the island uh, by happenstance. He was visiting a relative who was the prior physician there and the relative died while he was visiting. So he sort of inherited uh, by transmission the practice um, <laughs> and then became deeply immersed in local politics as well as obviously taking care of a significant part of the island for quite some time. So you attended local school there and you're saying that it actually featured especially good teachers. They're all like these hyper-educated people with all these advanced degrees, um, which is not what necessarily one would have expected sort of going to school. You were saying it's like in a super isolated place, but everybody is uh, sort of amazingly well-trained. How, how did that all happen? Yeah, I was I was just very fortunate that uh, when I was there, I had a remarkable group of teachers, majority of whom had uh, doctoral degrees, 
and was um, really excited uh, to participate in a, a really very broad and uh, eclectic education. It was great. Had a fantastic time in uh, in high school. So you went to college and med school at the University of Edinburgh and continued on in cardiology and, for good measure, received a Ph.D. in molecular genetics. How did you find yourself interested in cardiology, and also what drew you to genetics? I actually uh, got interested in, in cardiology largely as a result of having a murmur when I was a child. I was, uh, oh. I was taken around. In those days, there were no real, really deep diagnostic tools. Uh, echo was not really widely available, and so invasive technology was the only way to really evaluate things other than auscultation. And since I was basically completely well, I used to get uh, wheeled around, or not wheeled around, but driven around to individual cardiologists to uh, have my uh, murmur auscultated. And uh, luckily, they decided that uh, nothing needed to be done because actually subsequently I've, I've had... Uh, completely normal echocardiography and uh, <laughs> never had any symptoms. But in those days, it was it was something that um, really did require sort of multiple independent opinions. I and mean, I think emphasizes just how subjective quite a lot of uh, medicine still is and certainly was in those days. Yeah, well, I, I mean, is that, does that surprise you? I mean, it see, it, was it misdiagnosed or was it just didn't matter? You know, I mean, it seems to me this happens so often, I think, to patients that you get you know, three doctors, four opinions, and, and different treatment plans, and it's very very difficult to determine what really matters. I think you're 100% right, Lisa. I think, uh, I think the reality is that in many instances, a lot of medicine is, is artisanal. Uh, and I think one of, <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that is actually quite interesting is oftentimes the, the best way of, of differentiating between different opinions is actually to ask the patient. Uh, and ideally, over time, I think, to build a much more... Uh, objective trajectory of how the patient is is behaving physiologically, and and mm-hmm. that's something that I think uh, I'm I'm particularly excited about in the in the current reengineering of medicine is that we're finally getting to the point where that might be possible in a in a generalizable way. Well, we're looking forward to this, to, to talking about that. Um, but I'm wondering about for this murmur, would you was this sort of like the equivalent of like a murmur of uncertain significance, like an MUS? Is that right? Yeah, exactly. It was. Basically, exactly that. <laughs> like a rodent of unusual size. <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what a great analogy. That's exactly, it's so right. It's just exactly that. It's something uh, that for, and it still exists, I think, in general uh, um, pediatric care. Is there, there is this very uh, large subset of individuals who at different times just get picked up as having incidental murmurs. And because of the, the uncertainty of, of the implications, I think, People have for a long time worried about how best to, to manage them, and we've really come up with a strategy. And this is something that Zach, you know, Kohaney has talked about, the incidentalome. Um, I'm sure Mike Joyner has mentioned it in passing once or 50 times, um, <laughs> appropriately, I would add. Um, so, uh, so you, okay, so you have this background in cardiology and genetics, and then you continued your training in genetics and cardiology with a postdoc in Boston with Boston Research Royalty. Can you tell us about that? Well, I was uh, fortunate uh, when I was in London to work in the National Inherited Heart Disease uh, Center, which in those days was based at St. George's. Um, and as a result of that, ended up collaborating with the Sidemans, moved to Boston to work with John and Cricket uh, on the genetics of um, inherited heart muscle disease. So this is like a husband and wife team um, based in Boston that are just each of them are these incredible rock star. One's a physician scientist and the other's a scientist, right? 
Exactly. They're both uh, Howard Hughes investigators and, and really had remarkable careers. They essentially invented um, a large part of, uh, or discovered a large part of, uh, of cardiovascular genetics and have been really pioneers in the field. And so when you think about genetics in cardiovascular medicine, is it more predictive of behavior uh, than, you know, or less? It's tough to notice. I think one of the things that's actually quite surprising is that uh, in many instances, uh, genetics at a, an individual family level is, is quite useful. But once you move beyond individual families, the relatability of a specific variant in one family to the next actually can be quite modest. And so I think uh, what we're beginning to recognize is there's this sort of gap between the large effect Mendelian alleles and then the small but population uh, wide effects. And it's, it's that sort of missing um, heritability, I think, that we all feel is going to be important in, in making genetics um, more predictive. On the other hand, the other thing that's obviously quite clear is that almost everything in medicine is an interaction, uh, at least everything in adult medicine is, is a, an interaction between environment and, and genome. And since we don't really measure much of that environmental contribution, probably the only really robust way to integrate it all is to, is to assess the functional state of the individual. And I think that's, uh, again, something that we're, we're beginning to see is that uh, genetics may be a great framework for understanding individual patients uh, or individual families or even populations, but you need to be able to to measure uh, more rigorously what's actually happening at the individual level if you're truly going to be able to develop precision medicine. Yeah. Well, I was actually, I was thinking back to the conversation we had um, with Sek, uh, Kathrisian, and, and kind of talking about his genetic work and diagnostics and then contrasting it to the work that like Nadine Burke-Harris has done on... Um, on childhood trauma, and if you have certain numbers of childhood traumas, that you're as predictive of, you know, cardiovascular disease as you know genetics and and other things. I, I just wonder, often, um, you know, where the where the right line of inquiry is and how they how they must merge. I totally agree, and I think I think the key thing is 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 context and balance. I mean, the thing I've always been um, one of the things that drew me to genetics was the fact that the genome is really the only bounded data set in, in all of biomedicine. So it gives you an excellent framework for a comprehensive understanding of what's happening to the individual patient or all the way through the population. But I think what we're missing are the layers of uh, similarly comprehensive data in other spheres of the of biomedicine. And uh, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that uh, we're starting to see emerge where even mass customization data from um, you know, online purchases is offering really useful insight over time into what uh, patients are at risk for or, or pre-patients, individuals who are not yet uh, clinically recognized or may never even reach clinical uh, threshold. Just being able to manage wellness and health using all of the available data, I think, is really the the area we're all striving for. But I do think that uh, the genome offers a really great reference uh, base for all of that. All right. So you know what I wanted. To, I, I kind of thought we'd do this linearly. I thought we'd do this in an organized way. But you've 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 intrigued me too much. So I'm going to go completely off the rails here and just try to follow up on what you're talking about, um, because what what you're saying is that in order there's a lot of factors that influence health. You're saying that for the genetics, 
you sequence somebody, and at least you sort of have the framework, you have sort of the basic stuff, but you're saying that's really only goes a small fraction of the way. And you wish you had similarly rich data for many other aspects about them in order to more fully understand disease and also to understand health and prevent disease. Um, how do you go about getting it? Is it realistic? I mean, is that sort of a false analogy that you're going to be able to get the level of data or that people would want you to get that level of data on them? That people really Do people want to share with you their shopping, pattern, shopping patterns, their preferences? How do you both get the data that you think is required, and how do you do it in a way that's ethically comfortable? Those are all ex- excellent questions, David. I think, um, I mean, the key is that in many instances, what we allow to be collected in ourselves is a function of what we get back in return. And I think in, in each instance, I think we're going to have to really think through how we do this systematically, how we do it at low cost. And in many instances, I think we're not going to be able to afford to develop completely novel systems to collect these data. They're going to be things that we already need and use in the rest of our lives uh, or things that are already uh, in place in, in medical technology that we're improving the resolution of through uh, a variety of approaches, maybe adding perturbations in a systematic way. But you're talking about this in such a calm way. But like when you, when you, we, so I just heard this talk you gave at the uh, the Keystone meeting. There was this key digital health and data Keystone meeting um, uh, in um, uh, in Colorado, obviously. Um, and I mean, you really gave a um, you know a very sophisticated, but a kind of a version of this sort of the fire and brimstone or. Um, you know, almost like the, from the movie network, you know, we're mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore. And I mean, really, you were just talking about how what is going on in medical centers is so suboptimal and needs to be radically restructured. Could you do a um, you know, re- kind of walk the walk our listeners through a little bit of what you of, of what you shared and where you think both the problems are and, and how and your thoughts on how to move forward? Absolutely. Uh, so I think the, the, the key uh, primary observation, I think, is that even if you look at a, a genome between individuals, there are 10 to the 6 or so variants uh, between any two uh, even related persons. And so you end up in a situation where in order to deconvolute that information alone, far less all of the additional complexity that Lisa alluded to in terms of environmental exposures, um, experiential exposures, et cetera, uh, you need to change the the scale of what we measure in biomedicine by a factor of about 10 to the 5. The current current human phenotype ontology is only about 10 to the 4. And so to to really get the, the information content you need to to understand genetic differences, far less all of the other differences, uh, we need to change the scale. And by a lot, you're saying. You're saying by a huge amount. Oh, by a huge amount, by by several log orders. And so the, the question is, how do you do that without sort of creating a completely new environment? And my argument in that Keystone lecture was that in many instances, some of the most useful information is actually the responses to perturbations, the responses to interventions, or trajectories that we should already be collecting But because of that artisanal nature of medicine, we tend to collect it in a different way in every practice and every, to be honest, around every physician, around every disease area. And there needs to be and there ought to be, it ought to be feasible to do this in a more systematic way to begin to collect data that are 
organized in both the way we collect them and the way that we annotate them with metadata, and that that should be essentially part of the delivery of routine care. So make it make it real. Like, so what what are what are we doing now that's dumb that you can imagine restructuring in a smarter way? What would that? What would that? What's wrong, and what would look better? So, for example, let's just take uh, high blood pressure. It's a completely empiric uh, set of interventions. You try one drug at a time, you see if somebody responds, and then you titrate um, up the dose and move on to the next drug, add another drug, change another drug. And that is done literally in a different way by almost every individual physician who looks after hypertension. So as a result, there are literally hundreds of thousands of people a day intervened on in whom no useful information is collected because there's no systematic means of moving up the uh, titration scale of understanding what that individual's response was or even of documenting what that individual's response to those interventions was in a systematic enough way that it could be used to annotate, let's say, variants that have been implicated in blood pressure control. And so if you, if you had a, a more rigorous system for both uh, intervening and recording uh, with specific agents and recording the responses to those interventions, then every blood pressure patient that had ever been treated would be used to annotate those uh, genomic variants. So a fairly simple way of just systematizing the collection of data in the way that essentially almost every other industry has been able to do, building transactional information into our data collection architecture. And that's essentially what I I think we have to strive towards. I think it's not going to be easy to make those transitions by any manner of means. Uh, But it is something that when you think about it, in most other areas of endeavor in human nature, the systematic collection of data, whether it's in uh, online transactions or airline safety, has had remarkable effects at a system level on uh, our, the predictive utility of the data that we collect. So what's the output of that endeavor then if it's done well? Is it that there's a clear path from A to Z on on how you try drugs on blood pressure patients or is it something else that you a more personalizable methodology i think it's all of the above i think if it's done well enough you understand you can stratify individuals based on their uh, trajectory through that um, implementation uh, sequence you can understand uh, the biological implications uh, of their genomics and ex- exposures based on a systematic output. Um, you can actually begin to, for the first time, use data that are collected with rules-based engines to actually drive machine learning so that the entire system could be optimized um, on an ongoing basis. And I think this is one of the things that, that certainly we've found and I know other others have found when trying to apply machine learning, AI, or any other um, sophisticated computational technology to clinical data is that just simply because of the way it's collected, it's 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 very difficult to implement any of these tools in a rigorous fashion. At a certain level, it seems like you're trying to sort of algorithmatize you sort of the care and response, you know, patients and a response. Um, and I actually know from like working with you, I mean, I don't know anyone who's more empathetic as a physician who understands the exquisite human nature of medicine. So you're not sort of one of these incredibly emotionally detached people who are sort of showing up and saying, let's turn everybody into a data point. But on the other hand, that's kind of what you're saying. So how does the, how do you sort of square that? Like, are you advocating the practice of med? I mean, one, no one goes into medicine um, and I, or tries to become a patient because they want to endlessly input data, right? I mean, no one wants to become data em- entry. People are already grousing about being data entry clerks. So how it seems to me what you're proposing is almost sort of 
more detachment, more data entry, more sort of formalization. Is that what your sense is? That I mean, I know it's not, but I'm, it would seem. No, not at all. Yeah. No, thank, thanks for uh, for pointing that out to me because it, I think it, it does. This is part of the problem: is to do things in a in a systematic manner. You have to be able to balance the art and the science of, of medicine. And I think if you, if you imagine this, it's, it's only feasible now. This is the sort of thing that should and could have been done. But unlike any other industry, we haven't had digital tools to bring in the information. We haven't had Bluetooth-connected blood pressure cuffs. We haven't had even um, you know, wearables that are able to, to derive any meaningful biological data. Now that these tools are emerging, we're in a position where rather than adding uh, labor to the already overburdened um, and distracted uh, provider force, what you're doing is taking those things that can be systematized out of the, the routine interaction, face-to-face interaction, and creating real-time, real value in the face-to-face interaction for the provider, the physician, to actually be able to deal with the things that where there isn't system, systematization possible. And so it's, it's almost a reprofessionalization of, of providers so that instead of going through what, what are actually in many instances um, subroutines that that they are not reimbursed for, they're not, they don't have the time to uh, enact in, in a uh, robust and rigorous way. Uh, we're actually creating time and space and energy for the professional interaction to return, for the for the for that healing interaction between patient and and provider to be part and parcel of what happens every time you go to see the primary care doctor or the specialist or whoever else you see in in the healthcare spectrum. And I think that's really at the core of it, and I'm, I'm glad you highlighted it, because quite the opposite. I, I do think a lot of this is really is driven by empathy and coaching and helping people understand why you're doing what you're doing. But in many instances, if that also leads to dramatic variation in what we do, we don't learn from it. And, and that's really all I'm saying is if we can do this in a way where it's done more systematically and explained in that way to the patient, right. we can learn about that individual and at scale collectively learn together how we might improve the system on an ongoing basis in just the way that it's been feasible in, in every other area of, of human endeavor. So are you hopeful about all of the digital blood pressure measuring products that we're starting to see? I mean, we, there was one announced by Samsung. Apple says they're bringing one to market. Lavongo this week announced they've got one. You know, but yet I haven't personally heard anything to suggest that any of these uh, promised or real products have, you know, a lot of sensitivity and specificity. It seems to be very complex to measure blood pressure in, in situ, you know, and as people wander about in their lives. how What's it going to take for the medical world to think this isn't a step forward? Well, I, I think that's an excellent point, Lisa. And I think this is, again, a sort of reflection of how we've ended up measuring in many instances in medicine legacy phenotypes. There are things that really are have their origins in the 18th century. They're not tightly pathophysiologically or biologically related to the underlying disorders, uh, but they're things that are surrogates for something that we haven't yet been able to discern or, or identify or uh, stratify at a granular enough level to be able to measure. And so I actually think perhaps the, while there are some blood pressure tools that are becoming more broadly available, I think one of the things that, that this surge in wearable technologies that are capable of building trajectories 
of blood pressure will help us do. It'll help us, A, realize that blood pressure is an incredibly variable endpoint, which we had re- had really known for some time. I think uh, the delta between the top and bottom centiles in almost every clinical trial, even, even the successful clinical trials, um, is less than the breast-to-breast variation in, in blood pressure by a long shot. So you you recognize that that in many instances we're 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 measuring imperfect endpoints, and so if if this does nothing else, it will help accelerate the the development of novel tools to actually uh, represent the underlying biology, whether it's salt and water handling in the kidney or vascular stiffness or or some other more fundamental cell biological abnormality that we haven't yet discerned. The, this is the only way that we'll be able to do it at scale. Uh, and and noting, obviously, that I think this is something that probably has to be done in many instances, because many of the things that we measure are really aggregates of multiple different underlying biologies. And that's one of the reasons that genetics seems less powerful than it is, that um, that therapies are uh, are often difficult to understand the responses to, because we're using them not in a single discrete disease entity, but actually across an aggregate group of things that just happen to have fairly similar um, superficial endpoints. So I think that's really at the core of it. But I, I, I don't imagine that it's going to be an easy journey, uh, but I think it's one that we're, for the first time, beginning to, to embark on. And particularly, the, the thing that I love about it is that it's engaging the patients in, in their own uh, care and, and documenting their own physiologic states. How do you begin this change that you're describing? Because, you know, you're sort of in view, you, you have this it sounds like you have a future vision of the healthcare system, or you know, uh, in place where the you know more information is collected. You know, patients contribute more information; they get more useful information back. There's sort of this future state that seems appealing, but I, how do you get over that activation energy where there's so much change that seems to be required? Agreed. So I think I think what we have to do in the first instance is build robust systems for doing what we know already works. So you're not going to be able to throw out blood pressure immediately. What you're going to end up doing is essentially building a system that measures blood pressure and the responses to interventions well enough that you could understand the biology as part of the care delivery system. So that we don't have a completely separate um, research and development arm of medicine. We're going to have to have um, build the, essentially platforms and um, data collection architecture that lets a information flow without it having to be entered by the provider, which I think is is already an advantage that would would uh, encourage uh, early adoption. But b make it more convenient for the patient to participate in this type of interaction. In many instances, there's no need for patients to come for much of the the titration that we're talking about in routine care. It could all be done remotely, and if there were adequate data collection uh, architecture. And so I think part of getting from here to there is very practical implementation science that is connected with discovery and translation and innovation. Uh, And building systems that actually put all of that together is something uh, that not only do I believe is is important, but something that we've been working on to try and develop. But that's what I want to ask you about. So how does this relate to the One Brave Idea Award that sort of the MacArthur Genius Award bestowed on behalf of a consortium that includes the American Heart Association that Lisa's a part of, as well as Verily and AstraZeneca? Um, you, you know, received this, uh, you know, incredibly um, prestigious award. Um, is it, is, is the work you're describing um, an aspect of that? So I, 
the one brave idea which we are obviously very grateful to to have received that award is is really focused on trying to to um, develop and build novel architectures for for getting data into the system and really that that's sort of twofold one is can we actually identify uh, new biologies uh, that measure disease in its earliest stages we we originally defined the project as uh, re- redefining coronary disease at the edge of, of wellness, trying to build trajectories that would allow us, rather than waiting for for uh, the presentation of disease, to actually move to uh, objectively measuring health, which at present is only really measured as the absence of disease, and trying to do that in a very focused way around cardiometabolic syndromes, the precursors to atherosclerosis. And so what we've been doing in that area is really thinking about new, low-cost, scalable technologies that measure the underlying cell biology uh, and systems biology of atherosclerosis and its antecedents in a way that you can begin to dissect out different components of those diseases um, and ideally identify a, uh, a, a systematic approach to measuring wellness and, and measuring deviation from that at its earliest uh, inflection points so that you can a, introduce some of the preventative therapies that uh, we've already uh, we already know from the last 50 years of, of, of uh, excellent science work in in limiting the impact of coronary disease but we also start to uh, think about um, implementing behavioral changes at, at ages where those behavioral interventions may have much greater effect it's very tough to modify by behavior once once you're over the age of uh, 15 or 16. So it's a really powerful way of trying to drive um, risk assessment to its its earliest primordial prevention. And then the final thing I think it does is it also, and, and I think you know we've seen this in other diseases, so I, I imagine it's going to be the case in atherosclerosis, is that by moving earlier in the disease biology, you identify distinct forms that actually have unique etiological uh, underpinnings. And that allows you to a identify mechanism which is at the core of precision medicine and in particular at the core of developing novel therapies. Because even although statins and PCSK9 inhibitors have been remarkably successful, uh, as, as anybody who, who looks after heart disease, anybody who advocates for it, as, as Lisa does, will recognize um, that um, it's still the, the dominant killer in the developed world. Right. Well, I'm wondering, though, Callum, like, you know, I think about what you just said, and particularly the second point about looking for antecedents of disease and finding methods for, you know, quote, unquote, treating the absence of disease, the the precursors, and wonder how that fits in our healthcare system, which is predicated on medical necessity, um, you know, and payment for things that have already been shown to be a problem. How do we fit this preventive mindset in our in our healthcare system and our payment models that we live with. I, I I completely agree. I think, you know, as both you and David have highlighted during the course of the last half hour, I think this is one of the things that's really uh, at the center of everything that we're talking about as medicine as this whole uh, biomedical ecosystem sort of re-evolves in, in, a, in different directions. I think we're going to have to think about how we, we change the, the reimbursement models. We're going to have to think about how we change the way in which patients or individuals or pre-patients or everybody thinks about health. And actually, that's one of the things that, that I certainly noticed as we were reinventing some of the workflow to digitize blood pressure or lipid management or heart failure, that one of the things that was 
prevalent was learned behavior, both on the part of the physicians, but also on the part of the patients. And then in many ways, this is an opportunity to really rethink how we engage individuals in their own personal care, how we uh, work together to think about how this should be remodeled in terms of, uh, of it, the way that we pay for healthcare, but also, I think, thinking about how we, we really make it a univ- universal, universally applicable uh, set of, of biological uh, language. I think that's one of the driving things behind this. I didn't say that in a very uh, articulate fashion, but basically all I'm really saying is I think that because of the fact that biology is largely universal, uh, that we have to find a system that works for everybody, whether they're at the, the extremes of the demographics uh, or at the extremes of the disease biology, is contributing to uh, understanding human um, health and disease going forward. I mean, at the end of this, you, you really seem to be focused on how to create a learning, I hate the phrase, you know, because everyone uses it, but like learning health system, but based on the idea that there really is underlying biology and that everyone's interactions with the health system should contribute to the under, should each person who comes in should contribute to our understanding of biology. And at the moment, we're leaving way too much knowledge, learning, and data on the table. Precisely. And, and actually, the, one of the most interesting things about that is it actually incents um, everybody to think about everybody else's health and wellness and, and their diseases over time. So it's a, it's a community-building entity. So, so now you're, you're like very senior in the system. You were a former chief of cardiovascular at the Brigham. You're this leading cardiovascular center, uh, a role I believe uh, Eugene Bronwell had at one point. You're the vice chair of medicine at the Brigham. You're, you're an innovation leader in the Harvard community. As you've tried to do, enact these changes, can you think of an example of an unexpected hurdle that you've encountered, unexpected? Uh, as you've tried to do this, but also any unexpected allies who you found in in your process of doing this? So uh, another excellent question. So one of the things that that we have done is uh, to to build a program for management of blood pressure by uh, essentially non-licensed college uh, trained uh, uh, individuals under the supervision of a pharmacist in a, a collaborative care agreement. So to do exactly what I said earlier about a systematic implementation strategy, but have it run by college kids with the pharmacist present really just for uh, for uh, prescribing authority. And in that setting, there were uh, one of the most important hurdles was actually the fact that everybody who actually has blood pressure finds it incredibly difficult to Bluetooth pair a cuff with their with their home phone. It's it it really was a technological hurdle that I had not really imagined that <laughs> the 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 patient demographics and the uh, fundamental um, uh, um, dexterity with digital tools are are almost perfectly uh, um, exclu- excluding each other. Counter aligned, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so one of the things, and, and this, these are, I mean, when you look at the actual data, if you look at rock health data uh, from the last couple of years, it's very clear that adoption that in the people who actually have disease is much, much lower than adoption is in the general population of, of digital tools. Uh, and then the second thing I think that was really uh, interesting was the allies that we, we found were, were actually the primary care doctors who recognized that this system was just better at titrating uh, Drugs and measuring responses in real time, uh, simply because it was happening on the on the basis of the half life of the drug, and not on availability of slots in the primary care doctor's schedule, uh, or in in many instances it was mid level providers who had already been thinking about titrating 
uh, these medications or taking on these roles and practices. And so what it did was it decompressed. It basically had a, a really dramatic effect um, on on care. And initially, when when primary care doctors um, heard about the system, they were, I think, rightly um, uh, ambivalent and wanted to be sure that we weren't going to do anything that was uh, outside the normal bounds of care. But very rapidly, when they saw what was happening, uh, they were actually excited and realized that we were doing exactly what they wanted to be done, and we were doing it on a time scale of weeks rather than a time scale of months and years. And that for them was exciting. Wow, that's such an encouraging yeah. example because you always hear about like doctors being reluctant to mm-hmm. you know give up anything. I mean, people their doctors won't give up vaccinations because the uh, we're all pro vaccination, but the idea is whether it should happen in a doctor's office or by somebody mm-hmm. else. And you do always have these tussles over things that seem not at the top of the license. So it's nice that you developed an approach. We're so delighted to have you on the show. We're yeah. grateful for the work that you're doing. And it's always so, in, you know, inspiring, motivating, and just exciting to uh, to catch up with you. Um, because congratulations on everything you've done, and please continue to, to, do, to keep on keeping on. Great to talk to you, Callum. Thanks, David. Thanks, Lisa. Great to speak to you both. Cheers. Well, uh, he's always so fantastic. That was an yeah. interesting show, and he really has these incredibly ambitious plans that any sane person would be like, oh, it can't be done. Like, what's the point? But I think he's really, you know, trying to put forward an effort, trying to come up with specific examples. And he's he's experienced enough to realize the complexity of what mm-hmm. he's trying to do, but also feels so compelled by the importance of it, of the of the of how much we're missing and the opportunity to really do it better. Yeah, no, I agree. I just, you know, I, the big fear I have is that the payment system in the end thwarts his efforts, you know, unless we make some fundamental changes there. I don't think it's going to it's going to bear the fruit it could. Right. I mean, it's so there's so much incredible potential. Well, it's, uh, we, we wish him the best of luck. Um, wish us the best of luck. Please remember <laughs> to uh, rate us on iTunes, leave a comment, help others discover the show. You can follow David's writing at Forbes. And you can follow Lisa Soonan, adventurevalkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor, Metadata, the intelligent platform for life sciences that closes the loop between clinical development and commercialization to power smarter treatments and healthier people. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Remember what Callum says. If it's no Scottish, it's crap.